Now, you and I both remember the cost-based basis legislation that that was a while ago, right? <laughs> Since then, at least there is a source of good, accurate cost basis information. But to this day, we see situations where firms have layered on a portfolio management or rebalancing or trading system on top of a core system of record. We still see cases where firms do not have good or accurate cost basis and tax lot data when we're doing a conversion. Mm -hmm. So there's always something to delve into. Come on in, sit back and relax. You're listening to episode 130 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, founder of Ezra Group Consulting. And this podcast features interviews, news, and analysis on the trends and best practices all around wealth management technology. Our theme for this month is organizing and managing client data. And our guests were selected to deliver uh, lessons learned, tips, strategies to improve handling of client data wherever it's used in your organization. Uh, in the cold open, you heard our guest, Rob Klaprot from Vestmark, talking about how bad cost basis data can impact conversions. Now, at Ezra Group, we see bad data holding up platform implementations all the time because the firm's data architecture has deteriorated over the years and across multiple acquisitions or mergers, and no one in the organization is quite sure how all the pieces fit together. That's why Ezra Group launched our data assessment service to conduct in-depth reviews of data sources, downstream consumer systems, data utilization analysis for enterprise wealth management firms. And we deliver a comprehensive strategy and roadmap to get your data infrastructure under control. For more information on Ezra Group's data assessment service, go to ezragroupllc.com. Now, a couple of quick housekeeping notes before we go on. Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Make sure to check out our sponsor, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation at investinothers.org. Now let's kick this thing off. I'm happy to introduce our next guest on the program. It is Rob Claprote, Corporate Strategy Officer at Vestmark. Hey, Rob, welcome, man. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad you can make it. Glad we could coordinate this. Glad you had time for us. Where are you calling in from? I am calling in just north of Boston, about 20 miles due north of Boston along the coast, a town called Topsy. Love that area. Love going to Boston. Always fun to visit. Not this time of year, but... It's a little cold. You're used to it. Not a big deal. Cool. Um, so that's great. I'm in my uh, home state of New Jersey. It's, it's pretty cold here. The um, So... We're talking about uh, organizing and managing client data, which is the topic of the month. But before we do that, can you please give us a 30-second elevator pitch for Vestmark? Uh, sure. So uh, Vestmark is a wealth management technology platform provider. A little bit of a mouthful. Uh, we've been around about 20 years. Um, and we have tools for wealth managers and enterprises of all shapes and si sizes that are trying to manage uh, tailored, personalized portfolios for end clients. Uh, our clients really run the gamut of banks, broker-dealers, asset managers, 
and independent advisors. Uh, currently, we have about 1.5 trillion, uh, give or take, in assets that are managed on the platform, and that spans over 5 million investor accounts. Yeah, you guys are old school. I mean, you've been around a long time. You've 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 you've, uh, uh, you've managed the test of time. We're past the test, right? You haven't been acquired. You, you you stayed independent. One of the few firms that haven't been snapped up. Uh, so that's a testament to or, to um, how well you guys are managed and, and how well the firm is running. And I, I was just thinking how long we have known each other. We met like in two thousand and eight, man, on some on a big insurance company project. That was crazy back then. I believe that is correct. Um, and yeah, it was right around, uh, just before the financial crisis really hit. So that's always a mental marker. Um, we, won't, we won't say the name of the company, but it was a company that, that was way over their skis and they were trying to build a whole new platform for themselves with a million different things, a million different directions. And they wound up you know, taking a bath. Uh, it, well, yeah, a, a lot of companies did at that time. I think they had the right idea but uh, some factors outside of their control really conspired against them. And well, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, yeah, what are you gonna do? One th- and one thing we, we, that's part of any of these projects that we work on, we've worked on a couple of different projects together as a, on, on different sides. Usually I'm working for one vendor and you're running Vestmark, but the, um, it's always interesting projects where they're looking to integrate something or coordinate it. And it all, it all comes down to data and the data is driving all, everything we do, right? Everything we, everything we do is driven by data. That's kind of why we had this topic. So let's start things off. Can you talk about how Vestmark approaches organizing and managing data? Do you have any company-wide policies for how to be organized? How does it work? Uh, yeah, and you know, thinking specifically about you know, client information, uh, as I mentioned uh, the outset there, we, we've really grown up in the retail wealth management space. So ultimately it's all about the end investor. Um, and the firms we work with, they, they want to have a lot of investors, right? A lot of clients uh, at the end of the day. So there's always um, an enterprise scale component to everything that we do and everything we think about. So as we think about client information and what we need to really support our clients, there's a few areas that we always hone in on uh, in terms of what are the sources uh, of the information that we need? How is it managed? How is it maintained? How do we uh, make sure it's accurate and up to date. And at a very high level, uh, again, there are a few sets of information uh, that we think about. Um, one, of course, is just the client profile information uh, itself. Where is it coming from? Uh, we're not a CRM system, so we're never the source repository for that type of information. Um, but we just need to be aware of where that information is held to make sure we can access information from the CRM system. So there's client profile information we think about. There are investment goals, uh, risk tolerance, time horizon, things like that, that may influence the portfolios that are managed on our system. So that's always an area of consideration. Client investment preferences. Uh, We have grown up in the separately managed account world uh, where client preferences, client customizations always come into play. So what are those investment preferences? How are they captured? Can we help our clients capture investor preferences uh, to make sure that we understand what, how portfolios need to be tailored? Always an area that we think about. Taxes, uh, clients' tax rates, uh, capital gains budgets, uh, any other tax considerations that might influence the trading and the, and the portfolio activities that, uh, that are happening on our system. And last but not least, our investment accounts. Um, 
clients, right? People, you and I, uh, uh, that's, that's who we all are here to serve at the end of the day, the end investor, but their holdings, uh, their financial lives are kind of spread out in granular investment accounts. Um, accounts can be used and organized in different ways to fund an investment goal or an investment objective. Um, I'm married, so there's a consideration of my wife's account, my children, our different investment goals. So there's some notion of the accounts that are being used uh, to, again, to manage uh, and, and help achieve, help the clients achieve their financial goals and objectives. Uh, those can be internal accounts. They can be held away accounts. They can be discretionary accounts. They could be non-discretionary accounts. We need to understand all these factors because ultimately it's going to influence how we build and scale uh, the overall investment process uh, without neglecting uh, levels of personalization and customizations that uh, we want to help our clients, the, the enterprises that we support, what they want to achieve. So as we think about client information, client data, especially in enterprise setting, there's a lot of things that we have to think about and consider and help our clients pull together. When you talk about account structures, does that lead into, and all the different types of accounts, uh, there's also held away accounts. So does that lead into an area where you guys are pretty strong, which is the UMH? Uh, it certainly does. And I, I would say, as we think about the, the account, the, the relation, the structure of the client relationship, um, at the highest level, you have the, the client and the client's household. Uh, you know, I mentioned in there, I'm married. So uh, any spousal relationships, familial relationships that you need to be aware of um, as a financial advisor, as the enterprise wealth manager, um, what will the client's goals and objectives be? You know, thinking about estate planning and things like that. And are there heirs and other considerations when you think about the overall household and the client relationship? So that's at the very highest level. What is the family structure? As we start thinking about a unified managed household, that gets into how do I pull all the accounts together um, that fit into a particular client relationship? Um, and that might, those, those accounts might be held within my firm. They might be held away, but they're accounts that I, I want to be knowledgeable about because uh, it might help influence or guide uh, what I'm going to do with the accounts that I'm advising the client on. So I might want to complement activities that are occurring uh, outside of my purview. And to do that, I really need to know um, what, what's in those accounts. So there's a household level information and the accounts that I need to understand. Um, we have tools to kind of group accounts across the client relationship uh, to define asset allocation policies, investment goals, and objectives. So you can kind of collect and organize, okay, I have these sets of accounts or assets that I want to use to fund or support a particular goal. And clients maybe may think about these things in different ways. So we try to be fairly flexible in modeling the overall client relationship, grouping the accounts that might be applied for to a particular investment purpose. And as I mentioned before, in the accounts themselves, we need to know what those accounts are do I have discretionary control over those or not? Do I need to provide advice back to the client for them to implement in a held away or client discretionary situation? All these things influence the amount of automation we can instrument across the client relationship. And then UMH, you know, the Unified Managed Household has been a buzzword for quite some time. 
uh, in the industry and for good reason, right? We're all aspiring to add intelligence and automation at the overall client uh, level, which comes with it a whole slew of tax benefits uh, and considerations that can kick in too. Um, at Vestmark though, we've also been working heavily on the UMA, right? The unified managed account and what can be done and automated in a single custodial account while providing diversification uh, and supporting different actors, if you will, that might be participating in managing the client portfolio, be it the financial advisor, a centralized investment team, a third-party money manager, an outside overlay manager. So there's a lot of actors that, that ultimately need to be organized uh, to drive the best outcome for the client. And you might be operating across multiple accounts, right? In a household setting, it might be a single account. Um, there's just all kinds of combinations that we see out there. Hey, I want to take a quick break to tell you about our upcoming event, which you're going to find super interesting. It's a webinar called The Tower of Babel, Consolidating Data from Multiple Sources. We've pulled together some terrific industry experts uh, with decades of experience in managing, organizing, and optimizing enterprise wealth management data. I know you're going to want to listen in on this discussion, so jump over to our website, ezragroupllc.com, and click on the registration link at the very top of the homepage. The event is going to be streamed live on February 22nd, which is next week, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. February 22nd, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. But even if you can't make it, you should still register because we'll send you a private link after the event so you can watch the video whenever you want. So don't wait. Go to our website, ezragroupllc.com. Click on the registration link at the top of the homepage for the Tower of Babel, Consolidating Data from Multiple Sources webinar. Thanks. It's funny how since we've known each other for, for 15 years or more, uh, UMA has always been the next big thing. The UMA is going to take over. Everyone's going to be on a UMA. And we're still not really there yet. There's still a lot of Repus PM and a lot of other strategies or managed account programs. So do you see, have you, are you seeing any trends with your clients moving more assets onto, onto UMA platforms? Or is it still the next big thing for next time? Uh, no, we, we are seeing that. And, and you're right to kind of, I mean, as an industry, we love our acronyms, right? We love our terminology. Um, I, I mean, from our point of view, if you think about mutual fund wrap, SMA, separately managed accounts, ETF advisory, rep is PM, UMA, they're all just different gyrations trying to capture a diversified portfolio where the only differences are, what are the securities in it? Are they individual equities? Are they bonds? Are they mutual funds? Are they ETFs, right? When you start thinking about crypto and digital assets, but uh, the only differences are what are the securities in it and who's in the driver's seat? And the different combinations of, of those factors, those dimensions have just spawned all these different terms, which uh, an architecture could constructed correctly. You have the flexibility to, you know, so build and support uh, diversified portfolios using the investment vehicles that are best for the client situation. And with the actors uh, being able to contribute to the alpha, to the returns, whatever it might be in the client situation uh, that is best suited for, for uh, a given situation. Um, so as we think about rep as portfolio manager um, and, and overlay, um, I, I would agree that the flows haven't been as strong as they could be in the UMA. I think primarily, well, a couple of different reasons. One is compensation, right? 
there's always that factor. Um, but a lot of people, I think, have mistakenly associated UMA with an advisor fully relinquishing control uh, of the portfolio. And that doesn't have to be a true statement, right? So for some, for some situations, for some programs that have been architected, that is true. The advisor has to give everything up and some advisors are resistant to that. The way we've set things up is to you know, allow our clients, our enterprise clients, the home offices to kind of figure out, all right, what is the right role of any given financial advisor in any given client situation. Um, advisors are people at the end of the day. Not everyone can be an expert in all things. So there has to be some balance there. So I think properly constructed, well, one, UMA, rep as portfolio manager, rep as advisor, they're all just kind of acronym, right? Put all those, put all those aside. Um, what is the role of the financial advisor? How do you build and support a diversified portfolio? Uh, to me, that is a UMA. If you're bring, bringing diversification, mixing equities with funds, you know, pool vehicles where they have their place. Um, to me, that's UMA. I don't care if the advisor is in the driver's seat or somebody else, as long as it's appropriate for the client and the advisor is doing the right thing and the home office, um, you know, it's, agrees with everything that's happening. I'd like to take a break from this episode to talk about one of our sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. The Invest in Others Foundation is a charitable foundation that helps charities which are supported by financial advisors. So if you know a financial advisor that supports a charity, either in the US or abroad, you can submit his or her name to the Invest in Others Foundation to one of their programs, and they can be awarded uh, money for their charity. The Invest in Others Foundation is running one of their programs right now called Grants for Good. The application deadline is next week, January 24th. So please submit your financial advisor, as you know, for this grant. I think they're awarding up to $100,000 in grants to a number of charities. So any person who works in the financial services ecosystem is eligible to apply on behalf of a nonprofit. Uh, applications must be uh, active, currently volunteering with the nonprofit, and you just fill out the form online and you get a chance to uh, get some money for these nonprofits. I've been uh, honored to be a judge in some of these uh, programs and it's really tough. We have to look at 10 uh, different charities and decide and, and their advisors who help them and decide which ones to get the money. It's really hard. So the more money that you donate to invest in others, the more of these grants we can give. It makes it easier for us to pick because we'll have more money to, to spread around. So please go to the Invest in Others Foundation, investinothers.org on the web. You can learn more about them. Thanks. So next question. Everyone loves um, hearing about other firms' problems. Uh, we, we kind of enjoy that hearing how other firms have made mistakes and how we can avoid those. So can you share a few examples of you know, big problems you've seen at other at current clients or past clients, no names, of course, that were due to poorly organized or managed client data? Yeah, we have seen um, a lot of things over the years. Um, We've seen a lot. <laughs> we have seen a lot. I, I will say, you know, some areas have gotten better. Um, like, for the longest time, we were seeing just horrendous tax lot information. And I'm not even talking about in the trading systems that might not even be the core system of record. The systems of record themselves 
did not have good cost basis information. Now, you and I both remember the cost basis legislation that, you know, that was a while ago, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Since then, at least there is a source of good, accurate cost basis information. But to this day, we see situations where firms have layered on a portfolio management or rebalancing or trading system on top of a core system of record. We still see cases where firms do not have good or accurate cost basis and tax lot data when we're doing a conversion. Mm-hmm. So there's always something to delve into. So I, I there sometimes is this false comfort that, again, being on this side of the cost basis legislation, oh, hey, I have good, clean, accurate information from a tax lot perspective. That might be true in your system of record, but if you've layered on other systems or third parties to handle trading activities for you, you need to make sure that they too have accurate tax lot information and it's getting reconciled periodically. So we're still, we're still seeing uh, a bit of that. Um, you know, client restrictions, uh, again, being, you know, growing up in retail separately managed accounts, mm-hmm. there's always been this ability to um, accept client restrictions and customization requests. Um, there are some approaches, some systems out there where it, it's free form text to describe or capture client restrictions. Uh, There are data entry errors, right? People flat finger information all the time, it's easy to do. So we still see cases where restrictions have been misentered, miscalculated, misapplied, or they're not being monitored. So like there's a range of situations we've seen out there regarding client customization requests, either not being accurately captured or not being fully implemented and adhered to over time for whatever the reason might be. Um, The other area I guess I would raise, at least from a conversion point of view and a data hygiene point of view, are performance composites. Um, Everyone is convinced they have super accurate uh, performance composites and uh, it's not always true, I'll just say. Um, And it's a lot of things have to come together uh, when you start talking about performance composites and membership, especially in a, in a retail setting where you have cash flows, um, you know, occurring at any time you have client customization. So there's enough unique aspects occurring uh, in a retail managed account setting where there's just a lot to manage and maintain and monitor to have accurate performance composites. And, um, we just, we, we don't always see fully accurate performance composites as part of conversion. Are you talking about manager composites or account composites? Uh, they tend to be, uh, can think of them as strategy composites. So it, it might be tied to a third party manager. It might be tied to internal strategy that you want to uh, market the performance of. Mm-hmm. Anytime you start thinking about a consistent strategy that's being implemented and you want to market it and, you know, Put performance information regarding uh, that strategy out there. Call it what you will, right? But you want really a GIFT-compliant performance composite uh, backing up any stated numbers that you have. And again, we just see issues um, when it comes to managing those composites over time. So they think their composites are accurate, but they're wrong because their data is not clean or for other reasons? 
It's usually for, for other reasons. And, and there are different types of composites, right? You might have an overall composite that is capturing everything, every single account uh, that's tracking a particular strategy. Those are usually fine. Um, it's the ones where due to client activities, um, the CFA will allow you to exclude certain accounts for periods um, of, the, of the performance time period. And it's those situations where uh, accounts aren't accurately moving into and out of the composite for whatever reason. Um, and that's where those, that version of the composite calculation is off. Now, is it material or not? That varies. Uh, do you restate it or not? That varies. So a lot can go into it. Uh, but per performance composites remains one of those areas where Again, there's just a lot to track and maintain. If you're not doing it in an automated way, uh, it just gets messy. So working backwards from our list of, pro of horrendous problems, what are some of the best practices that you can share around client data? So let's talk about um, composites. So what, what, what are some best practices that firms should use to make sure their composites are accurate? So, uh, the single biggest thing there is take a rules-based approach to managing composite membership. So what are your rules regarding cash activities? So, you know, cash flows. If there are large flows into or out of an account, define those thresholds and then make sure you have a rules-based system to implement, monitor account activity and automatically move uh, client accounts into and out of uh, the composite. Same with restrictions. Uh, you know, client restrictions uh, can have an impact on the portfolio's performance, positive or negative, frankly, uh, depending on the threshold of that restriction and its impact in allowing the account, the portfolio to track your, say, optimal strategy, your ideal strategy, um, define your policy for that restriction impact and whether or not you're going to move an account into or out of a particular composite. And again, make sure you have a rules-based approach to managing the membership of accounts moving into or out of the composite based on the restrictions. Because restrictions can change over time and the impact of those restrictions can change over time. So you need a rules-based system and you need some automation in place to move accounts into and out of composites. And then in the other areas, um, you know, back to some of the, even some of the tax lot data, which we, which we continue to see, uh, you should, to me, it should go without saying, you should be reconciling cost basis and tax lot data, full stop, right? If it's moving around, if external systems outside of the core system of record are relying on that information, um, you should be reconciling that data, especially if you have, you know, in a retail setting, you have taxable accounts, the tax lots matter, the cost basis matters. Uh, you might be marketing and providing tax aware or tax optimized services. Um, and if you don't have good tax lot data, how do you know the, the intended uh, trades, the intended outcomes for clients from a tax perspective that you want to happen are indeed happening. Um, so you gotta be reconciling that data, you know, full stop. Reconciling is always good advice. Telling firms to you got to reconcile at least daily is is a is a great time to do that. It's uh it's good advice. You, 
certainly for tax lots and, you know, other things, you know, back to the restriction example, right. Uh, and thinking about other, you know, just client information, it's just good practice to reconcile or synchronize all the client information that you have periodically. Now, not everything needs to be done daily. You need to think about the frequency that particular sets of information may be, may be changing and the impact of the risk to the firm in having bad information. Um, I mean, if you miss an address update, uh, maybe you mail an envelope to the, to the wrong place. I guess there's a grambling Riley consideration there. So maybe you should, right? So all this stuff has an implication, but uh, because we're so close to trading uh, in particular, that, that has to be daily, right? It has to be. So what are some tips or strategies around organizing and managing client data you'd recommend that other firms implement now? So you go into a lot of companies, you see what they're doing, you do your discovery, you find these problems. So before you even get there, what's, what are some things that enterprise wealth firms could be doing now to get their client data in order? Well, I, as, as we think about it, you know what they could be doing now, we just touched on the biggest one, um, reconciliation. <laughs> if you don't have a reconciliation policy, you know, basically for all of your information, you need, you do need to take a little time and think about what is that information and what is my reconciliation uh, policy and what processes and, and procedures do I need to make sure that I, you know, fundamentally have accurate data, right? You need accurate data to operate. So if you haven't done that across the board, in a macro sense, and even in you know, a granular sense, especially again, as we think about trading information, um, you should do that uh, immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, as, I, as we think about organizing client information um, and what firms can be doing now, I talked a little bit about UMAs you know, earlier. If you don't have a sleeve level system of record, I would recommend that you implement one now. Now, there are inherent benefits in doing as much as you can in a single custodial account, right? You, you, can, you can be far more nimble uh, when it comes to asset allocation adjustments, uh, specific position adjustments. There's less paperwork. There's less cost. There's a lot of benefit to doing what you can in a single custodial account. But to do that, you do need to track and manage and maintain sleeves, Now, most core custody systems, trust accounting systems, other systems of record, they don't have a notion of sleeves. So to be able to layer on and support the different diversified investment solutions your client want and need, do it at scale while maintaining the benefits of a single custodial platform and a single custodial account, you need to be able to support true sleeve lot accounting. Is it really is it really necessary? Couldn't you just do strategy level? Well, you could, but then some things break down. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you a scenario. Because most well, firms do put a, a one strategy per sleeve anyway. So, what's the difference? Well, so you you have strategies. Some of this is vernacular. As I think about an asset allocation policy, I want a diverse portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have an equity manager. Maybe I'll let my advisor manage some funds or ETFs in a particular sleeve. And I have a fixed income manager. You know, I want a, a custom bond portfolio or sleeve with, within, again, a single custodial account. Mm-hmm. You need to diligently track 
the exact holdings, the exact cash balance, as well as the access controls for who can do what in each portion of that broader portfolio. So when you start thinking about how do I coordinate the activities between an external equity manager, what the advisor may be doing, and a third-party fixed income manager, they all need to make sure little things, or not so little things like cash, that they have to support their portion of that portfolio is accurate and synchronized and isn't gonna slosh around underneath them. So we see constantly firms will kind of, they have a half-baked approach to trying to manage, manage sleeves. And it might be at the asset allocation or the sector level or by style. And cash is one of those hairy little things that doesn't neatly conform uh, to that type of hack, if you will, in trying to support uh, a UMA. And things very quickly break down uh, once you start trying to coordinate trading activities, tax optimization, you know, thinking about fixed income strategies, right, where it might take time to move into or out of a position. If, if cash is sloshing around, you have, no, you, you have very little ability to coordinate all the trading activity. The other point I would say on all this you know, back to uh, kind of GIPS composites, right? Now, when it comes to performance and performance measurement, you may not necessarily need to or want to put a sleeve level performance return in front of your own client. Maybe not even the financial advisor, although most financial advisors tend to want to know how a given manager or strategy that they've slotted into a portfolio is doing. So client, that's up to you, right? The advisor, probably. But your manager research and oversight team, they should know exactly the quality of the input that they're getting from their third-party manager partners. How do you do that if you're leveraging third-party manager strategies in UMA and you can't accurately track and measure the performance of the sleeves where their strategies are being used? And if cash is sloshing around, little things like cash, you fundamentally can't do it. So I would say from an oversight perspective, you know, thinking about home offices, it's table stakes. The other audiences, the other actors in the UMA process, the advisor, I would say, yes, should know. Client, that's a firm decision. And there you go. Um, what about, so we, we were talking a little bit earlier about data quality. So is there some generic uh, recommendations you have for firms about how they can better manage the, their data quality? Yeah, well, we already talked about reconciliation. Uh, you know, generally speaking, and I, I think most enterprises, we if not all enterprises, the large firms that we walk into already have this philosophy. Um, you really should be only entering and capturing information, new information once, right? So whatever your core system of record is for the piece of client information, you know, be it a portfolio, client preferences, the CRM, a planning tool, only capture that information once and then make sure it can be published downstream to any, any other systems, audiences, et cetera, that might need it. And you know, make sure you can only edit it in one place too. Um, so you know, I, I, I talked before about, and we, we touched on UMHs and, and unified managed households and household groups and things like that. Um, wherever we can source household information even household and account group information from an external system, that is our preference. That said, because some of these concepts are unique to what we do, we have tools to help clients 
uh, define what an account grouping methodology might be, you know, again, tied to an investment goal or something like that. So you have this issue of, well, now I'm editing, you know, account group information. So make sure that when you're sourcing information, managing information, you capture it once, publish it wherever it needs to go, only make sure you can edit it in one place. Otherwise you run the risk of discrepancies. Um, you, you can lose, versions can kind of run amok. So only have one place to capture and edit information, whatever it is I would view uh, as, as an overall uh, best practice. And then beyond that, from just an overall architecture point of view, you know, and some of the some of these are just fundamentals and should go without saying, but it, I'll say them anyway. We've harped on reconciliation, so make sure your data is accurate, whatever it is. Make sure it's timely, uh, whatever it is. Make sure you're getting timely updates. So back back to tax lot information, uh, cash withdrawal requests, right? That might be coming in from one place but need to be known downstream. Make sure all the data is is timely. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, make sure it's available and it's readily available. You know, once you have a, a single source that needs to publish and make available client information of all types, uh, there might be demands on that system by, by client, client user, uh, user, user interfaces, by downstream systems. And, you know, a lot of firms are developing APIs to, to, to access various, various pieces of information. Those APIs can get slammed. So you need to be mindful of uh, making sure information is readily available so it doesn't impact the client experience or the downstream function or process. Again, we, we, we think a lot about trading and high-scale trading. We need to make sure that tax lot information, transaction information, client restriction information, all that stuff is readily available so that when we need to get tr trades to market based on whatever the changes might be occurring, nothing's getting in the way and they can fly out the door. Nothing getting in the way. That's a pretty good motto for, for data. Don't let anything get in the way. Uh, so what is there, we, we, spoke, we talked about a lot, we covered a lot of ground, Rob. What didn't I ask you that you'd like to share about this topic? I may, a couple of things kind of come to mind and they're, they're tangents or they're subsets of a couple of things that we did touch on. Um, so one area is the capturing of ESG tastes and preferences. So I mentioned earlier uh, investment preferences, investor preferences, customization requests and things like that. Uh, ESG is a growing area of interest, obviously. Um, it's going to be an evolving area, I think, for quite some time. Uh, and we're seeing uh, some firms out there uh, developing some interesting and innovating approaches to trying to discern what truly are clients' ESG preferences and tastes. Um, so we're seeing, again, some interesting innovations when it comes to surveys and how do you pose questions to clients? Um, you need to do some A-B testing, right? There's there, there, this is a whole area of behavioral science, right? And other industries that we're starting to see applied when it comes to ESG taste and preferences. So firms need to be thinking about that. Um, it, it's a growing area of investor interest. So how do you, again, tru truly try to understand um, clients' ESG preferences, but then how do you also try to explain to a client what the implications might be of their ESG tastes and preferences in their investment uh, portfolio. So there, there's two sides of, of ESG that, 
we're at least two sides that we think will continue to evolve quite rapidly. Again, the questions, the surveys, the trying to unearth uh, investor tastes and preferences, and then the communication side of that, what it might mean, what are the implications of um, implementing that in a client portfolio. So your audience should keep an eye on that. Uh, the other I touched on at the outset, I think, as we were talking about held away assets and uh, the overall client uh, situation, uh, digital assets, right, cryptos, and all the different types of digital assets. There are proliferation of digital asset types, custodians, exchanges, uh, sources really to pull all this information together. So from a, a data architecture point of view, you know, the clients we work with, the wealth managers, they're striving to maintain a holistic view of the client's wealth picture. And for an increasing number of us, um, that is gonna include digital. So you need to be thinking about how you pull that information together. There's a separate decision about what you wanna do with it. What do you want, how you wanna advise on that, what you may or may not want to manage, but at the very least, you're gonna to wanna to understand what the client's digital wealth picture looks like, so. Is Vestmark supporting uh, cryptocurrency? Uh, we are, um, and then we're just thinking through, along with our clients, what, what do they want to do? Uh, and again, that's why I kind of started out there. At the very least, you want to understand what a client's digital wealth picture looks like. Mm -hmm. Then from there, what do you do? What do you advise, right? There's compliance considerations or regu regulatory considerations. Um, so that's where we will continue to look. You know, what, how do we help our firms not just understand, but thus, then also advise and manage on those, those digital holdings, those crypto holdings in a manner that's best suited to their firm, right? So that's gonna be an evolving area for us, but something all your, your audience needs to be thinking about if they're not already. It's a good topic for a whole nother podcast, how you guys are doing digital, but we are running, we've run out of time. You've said it all, you've covered all of our ground. Rob, been very generous with your time and information uh, and sharing your experience. Let everyone know where they can find out more information about Vestmark. Vestmark.com with a V. V E S T Mark. Yes, that's a Vestmark. If I didn't announce yeah. that. Yeah. Cool, Rob. Thanks so much. All right. Great. Thank you, Craig. Hey, it's Craig again. Here are my top three takeaways from this episode. Number one, composites. It's important to take a rules-based approach to composite membership. Uh, Make sure you have cash flow thresholds and build an automatic system uh, or set up an automatic system, get a vendor that does this so you don't have to manually move accounts in and out of composites. That's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, layering a portfolio management system on top of your system of record, as Rob mentioned, that's what most firms do. Most firms don't just use their system of record, which is usually the custodian, as their only tool for portfolio management, unless they're really, really small. Uh, or there are some portfolio management systems that don't do shadow accounting, don't have overlay, and just uh, wipe and load every night the custodial files. So in that case, it's really not layered. But if it is layered, uh, if they've got shadow accounting and, and overlay, you need to pay attention to your cost basis data as Rob mentioned. And uh, the three points Rob mentioned towards the end of the interview, data, make sure your data is accurate, timely, and available. Available to the right people, available to the right parts of the organization, uh, and timely and accurate with uh, important to get your recon done diligently on a daily basis. 
uh, back to our data assessment. Document all of your sources. Uh, take some time to do that where things have changed in your organization over years. So look for all your data sources in each area, whether it's performance measurement, billing, performance reporting, uh, investment analysis. Look at all the downstream systems that are taking advantage of that data, document all those. Look at the data utilization, which, for, which uh, systems are using what data, is there any duplication? Do you have the same sources uh, feeding multiple or is the, the same data duplicated across multiple sources and you can possibly get rid of something? That could save you some money and reduce um, the complexity of your systems and look for where you can optimize. And there you go. That's it for this episode. You've made it to the end. Thanks for sticking with me all the way through. Uh, please go to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up for our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of wealth management, goodness, news, analysis, links, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Thanks for listening again and talk to you guys all next time.